You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This week, Am Joe Hall and Melissa Roach are joined by activist lawyer poet Adrian Smith. As a non-binary trans person, Adrian has been a key advocate for social justice and labor rights for all workers. They work pro bono at the Catherine White Holman Center, providing legal support to trans and gender diverse folks, and they're generally just a delight to listen to. So here it is. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this week. We're really excited to have Adrian Smith uh, with us, a human rights uh, lawyer who also works with the Canadian Labour Congress as a regional rep. And I'm also here with my, my colleague, Melissa Roach. Hi, I'm Melissa. I also work with Am in SFU's Van City Office for Community Engagement, and I'm so happy to be meeting you. Thanks so much for having me. It's exciting to be here. Uh, Adrian, uh, when I first uh, met you, you were a spoken word poet. You were not yet a lawyer. <laughs> and I uh, wonder if you can talk a little bit about your uh, road to uh, starting to do human rights law. It's a long story. It started, um, I think, my path as a lawyer and an artist and a poet and um, an act, a labor activist is all caught up together in the same kind of threads. And I was elected steward as the uh, uh, for the, the garbage yard the city of Burnaby Sanitation Department where I was working, which is how I put myself through my undergrad. It was a job that did not require all of my brain cells. And so I would write uh, poems in the truck on my breaks. And eventually when I came to do a master's degree, I applied jointly to English and geography at UBC. Uh, and geography has scientists in their department, so they also have funding. Um, so I, uh, I won a fellowship. I was able to uh, go to uh, grad school, and my thesis was a play about working class political identity, the epidemiology of cholera, and the performance of identity. And I feel like this whole creative writing, labor, social justice, activism, set in this time when the factory system and industrialization was starting to happen, and the necessary counterpart of labor movement activism rose at the same time. And I think these two threads have grown up in me. Um, but in the middle, like 2004, we had a big strike at UBC and I was the president of the teaching assistance union there. And I was very much struck by how labor really cherishes the roots it came from. And I think as a young activist, I was quite dismissive about its um, potential to be a container for change and its relevance in the world moving forward. I've changed my view. I think I've aged into um, a deeper appreciation of what labor is now. But at the time, I was looking for something really different. And I thought that was electoral democracy. And I went to work for the NDP as a researcher in opposition in Victoria. And um, I had my heart broken every vote because I had such stars in my eyes. And I thought, you know, if we just 
make this question period question good enough, mm -hmm. then the government will change. Of course, that's not how it works. Um, so with a broken heart, I came back to the downtown east side and got involved in not-for-profits. And uh, I worked at the Portland Hotel Society and did lots of basic frontline social justice work and realized there needs to be yet another way. And at the time, what lawyers were training for was to sue right-wing governments. So I learned how to do that, and I got quite good at it, And I think. Um, and I got to sue some governments, and the governments have changed. And now I've had to really retool and think about how to uh, collaborate with government and how to ask them in a way that they can understand how to make change. So... Yeah, when you finished uh, law school, you went to work at uh, Pivot Legal Society. I wonder if you can talk uh, a little bit about the kinds of cases that you took on there and um, um, the type of work that was there. Yeah, I, I'm grateful Pivot took a risk on me. They were looking for a three-year call, and they hired me out of my articles, I think in part because I had some uh, experience in the neighborhood already. And I was the drug, uh, health and drug policy lawyer there. And the goals for my campaign at Pivot were to have drug use issues framed as health issues and to make sure that harm reduction and drug treatment and whatever basic health care people who use drugs needed was available in their communities across the province. What that looked like in terms of litigation was a challenge to secure prescription heroin for a group of folks who were getting prescription heroin across town. Um, it, it felt like my uh, researcher in the legislature, bright stars in my eyes, if we could just explain this in a way that was coherent, the world would change because the outcomes for these folks were tremendous. They, they stabilized their lives. Many of them got work and volunteer opportunities. Some of their other chronic health care uh, came under control just because of contact with the system. And it, it was um, a devastating time under the Harper government to try and make change. Um, and the only tool we had was litigation. Similarly, we were fighting to get needle exchange programs in prison. This was an Ontario case. Um, we were challenging mandatory minimum sentences and, of course, struggling to make sure that insight continued to be uh, accessible and available. And it's, uh, I think the mandatory minimum sentence piece is the last really critical piece of work that needs to be done because it sounds like the Trudeau government isn't going to overturn these base, like throw the book at them, Harper style sentencing regimes. And for people who use drugs or who come before the court as a result of their addictions, these are really just unconscionable sentences. And we're not going to arrest our way out of any of the issues surrounding drug use in the community. Um, around uh, with the human rights sort of uh, uh, approach and background that you have, uh, as you've uh, been much more of an advocate on uh, transgender rights, how would you um, sort of characterize the possibilities and limitations of a kind of human rights approach to transgender rights? I have a more thoughtful critique of the human rights regime in British Columbia than I did before I started doing this work. Um, but maybe I'll start by talking about why I do this work. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. I'm a non-binary transgender person, and I say that, and this makes me a member of my community, but I'm also mindful that I'm a white settler with far too much education, and um, I'm often invited to speak on issues like this, and it, there's a lot of privilege um, that surrounds me, uh, and I think that's the reason why it's necessary for me to to be an out trans person and insist that people use my gender neutral pronouns and to stand up and say I'm a trans person because I know lots of other folks in my community can't because their lives would be in danger. Um, I think the low level of death threats that I get is a fair, uh, fair tax on my privilege, as is the work that I do in the community. So 
what I'm working on right now mostly is, uh, I mean, when I'm feeling sarcastic, I feel like I'm a well-behaved trans person professionally. Um, but I mean, there's some very important education work that I'm doing right now, particularly in the labor movement, which has thrown open its, its eyes and its mind to really uh, find out how we can better include trans people in our workplaces and in our unions. Um, but also I'm doing a whole hell of a lot of pro bono legal work for trans people. Um, you asked me about the human rights regime. Yeah, I, I also have a question yeah, let's about have your question the, first. the work that you do mm-hmm. um, pro bono. When your preferred pronouns and your identity don't match up with your legal documentation, how does that play out in the system? Is that ever respected? Maybe that's a pessimistic for, way of for, my for, for anyone. Yeah, if you could speak from your personal experience too. Uh, well, we saw this in a recent human rights tribunal case called Dawson and uh, Angela Dawson, who many of her listeners may know. She goes by Roller Girl and likes to direct traffic. Um, there was a human rights tribunal case about her when the Vancouver police arrested her, used her dead name, and used masculine pronouns for her repeatedly. They also denied her access to some critical medical health medical care while she was in custody. And the human rights tribunal found that this misgendering, even when that this misgendering is a human rights violation, even when a person hasn't legally changed their name, which is amazing and huge. That is huge. Um, because Angela's documents had a, incorrect gender markers and a different name for her. Um, we often find in an employment setting, employers saying, oh, well, you know, once you change your name legally or once you've had surgery and you're trans enough, then we'll accommodate you and we'll make this place safe. We need to make changes to include people f- way, way before that. Um, And so folks in the legal system, um, as a lawyer who represents trans people, I have a conversation with them and I ask them what their pronouns are. And then I ask them a critical second question, which is, who do you want to be in front of that judge? Yeah. Because somebody might be really clear being an out trans feminine person to me, but when we go into court for their family law case, they're going to be Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith or, you know, dad. Um, which is heartbreaking and reminds me every day that gender expression, which is separately protected in the Human Rights Code, is separately protected for a really important reason, because it is one thing to have an identity, to feel what your gender is, but to be able to wake up in the morning and put on uh, really (laughs) armor for the world and pick your clothes that express your gender, that's something not everyone has the power and the privilege to do. And I'm thinking of a, a client of mine who works in allied law enforcement, And she would very much like to put some stud earrings in and grow her hair the one inch below her collar, which is allowed for women in her profession. But she'd have to tell her employer that she was transgender to do that. And that would expose her to violence from her coworkers and her clients. And it's just not possible for her to do. Uh, And that kind of basic workplace dignity, that that needs to change. Yeah, those questions are so such a small token to like to offer someone and i think that dovetails actually into my critique about the human rights system which is that in british columbia at the moment in the absence of adequate legal aid for human rights cases all the burden falls on the the aggrieved person who's had a violation happen their human rights have been violated in some way and they are responsible for bringing the case and defending it over a 12 to 18 month or longer process without legal support largely um and All human rights cases in British Columbia have as part of them a mandatory settlement process uh, when the person who's alleged to have violated the human right offers the the victim a sum of money to go away. And these are all covered by a non-disclosure agreement. So the public doesn't benefit from learning about what these things could cost. uh, And it can be factored into the cost of doing business for 
human rights violators in a really unconscionable way. And I'm quite hopeful that the new Human Rights Commission will do lots of the education work that's necessary. But I think supporting human rights complainants is something that needs to change in British Columbia as well. Yeah, that's just buying your way out of those kinds of terrible violations just seems yeah, this is something I never would have thought of that people would count on that. Yeah, and that yeah. complainants can never talk about and neither can alleged violators and there's never a finding people are don't get the satisfaction and the justice that they're looking for when they come to the human rights system now in terms of the realm of uh, labor law for example uh, what are some uh, directions that uh, legal cases and precedent have taken uh, i assume principles like duty to accommodate and other areas uh, come up uh, for you as a lawyer in terms of arguing cases and there's an interesting precedent that uh, lays out a union's obligation not to discriminate. Um, it comes out of a case from a union that has become move up. It was COPE 378. Before that, it was COPE 15. And it has to do with an office where there was a taxi driver, series of taxi drivers, two women in the office who ran the office and did dispatch. Um, one of them was a cisgender, that's to say not trans woman. The other woman was a trans woman. And the union rep got a call. Uh, from the employer saying someone has complained about this trans woman using the women's bathroom. If that call came to me today, I would tell the employer to settle down and that's perfectly acceptable and this woman has the right to use the bathroom. That's not what the union rep did. Uh, what he did was uh, get concerned that this was a women's issue and perhaps this uh, trans woman would like a woman steward and not the normal steward. Uh, so he called this steward not thinking that there were two women in the workplace and one of them had complained about the member using the bathroom. It turned out to be this replacement steward. So he also didn't call the member. So the employer, the steward and the member sat down, or, and the rep sat down. The member didn't come. The employer subsequently disciplined her for not coming to an investigation meeting because no one had told her. Um, and as often happens when trans people experience workplace difficulties, she went off sick and never came back to the workplace. And her collective agreement issues were solved in arbitration, but the subsequent human rights case that came against the union found that the rep had been had a duty to uh, not discriminate against her and that he had. And there was a $5,000 fine to the union, and this is substantial, and it's quite useful for me to talk to people who are like, well, I don't get your identity politics, and I'm not playing your funny pronoun game. I can say, well, fine then. It's very expensive. <laughs> uh, so just telling people that they have a base responsibility. Uh, I think lots of trans inclusion in the workplace has been framed as a duty to accommodate, and I think that's the wrong way to move forward. I don't think trans people are disordered or disabled in any way. I think trans people are part of the fantastic and delightful variety of human existence. But we inherit this duty to accommodate. It does give some protection. Uh, it gives protection to people across all grounds, predominantly. Um, we see this in the workplace and re religious grounds and for uh, birth parents. But for trans people, it's language that labor activists understand. But to talk about what steps we need to go beyond that and be proactive, there's a fantastic little guidebook put out by the Canadian Labor Congress called Workers in Transition, which is a good starting place for folks who are building a transition plan for a trans person. I'll also refer people to the Trans Rights BC webpage, which is a web tool that uh, was Law Foundation funded. It was a joint project of Vancouver Coastal Health and the Catherine White Home and Wellness Centre, which was meant to be a clearinghouse for basic legal information for trans people. And we polled the community and asked them what they wanted. They wanted information on things like going out in public, 
education, health, prison, sex work. So there's a, a list of what your rights are. There's some mortifying videos of me that my mother thinks are <laughs> cute, but I'm mortified about telling people they don't have to talk to the police. Um, and a list of references to agencies that can actually give on-the-ground support for folks, and particularly for trans people outside of the Lower Mainland. Um, it's a really critical tool. So yeah, that's wonderful. Those two pieces, one for the workplace and one for, for more broadly. We should. We will link to those Excellent. in our episode you will description. Find them you can the find notes. them in the in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to ask a little bit more if you could talk about the Catherine White Holman Wellness Center. You you mentioned it, and, and what are the other things that, that happen there, and what they do? Yeah, Catherine White Holman Wellness Center started as a student nurses project to deal with the tremendous barriers trans people have accessing healthcare. Not just because all medical records are binary. We know a woman who has a hard time getting a prostate exam. She is a trans woman. She changed her name. She's changed her gender marker. She still has a prostate. It needs to be examined. But an MSP billing code prevents this service from being billed to her. So they have to check her in as John Doe in order to do this part of the exam, which is not at all gender affirming. Um, so bearing all of these issues in mind, this clinic began. It's entirely volunteer run, mostly by trans people and for trans people. And it started with a mandate of explicitly including people without documents uh, so that folks can get uh, health care without having a service card. Increasingly, other allied health care joined the center. Things like nursing, a nutritionist, massage therapy, counseling, which is particularly critical for my community. I'm the legal department there. Um, we also have a volunteer immigration lawyer who uh, will help folks uh, predominantly these days with refugee applications um, for folks. We're seeing lots of folks fleeing the United States now and coming to Canada and looking for um, a way to stay and a way to be safer. Um, and I will offer people 30 minutes of free summary legal advice. Mostly what I do there is notarize name change forms because people need to have this and many lawyers will charge more than $100 for this. So I do them oh, wow. for free. I think it's unreasonable that uh, a lawyer needs to certify who you are or a doctor needs to say you're trans enough for a gender change. Um, but these are the forms that we have and I've expressed those views to government. Um, but mostly I notarize name change forms and I get to be part of people's big day when they get to say goodbye to a name that doesn't describe them at all and apply to get foundational documents. So when they've amassed enough money, they'll be able to get all of their ID and their proper name and gender. Now, you see some uh, provinces and states uh, where there's um, uh, moves from a public policy point of view to move towards um, uh, not defining uh, gender or having X as a gender marker. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the dynamics of that and the, the limitations of it and what are the challenges are in government in terms of what's working and what's not. Yeah, we have for a long time and really without thinking about it defined the world in terms of binary gender and we conflate sex and gender. So we think people who are assigned male at birth will adopt a masculine gender and identify as men and we think that people assigned female at birth will adopt a um, feminine gender and identify as girls and women. That's not true for trans people. Um, it, it can be muddy and people can identify in a binary way or like me, I'm a non-binary person. I don't identify with either side of the binary. So all of my British Columbia ID has the letter that I was assigned at birth. 
doesn't describe who I am. And whenever anyone looks at my ID, I get misgendered. And I mean, for a middle-class lawyer, that's one thing it's annoying, but for folks who can be exposed to violence as a result of those disclosures, it's impossible to put someone back in the closet once they've been outed. So in the same way that we no longer ask your father's occupation on the long-form register of birth, <laughs> there's some community advocates who are saying that it's no longer necessary or accurate to record gender information. And there's two opposing polls on what to do about this problem. One group says, uh, let us have an X or a U or a T uh, as an additional option, which administratively for government is easier because you just add another radio button. <laughs> um, and others say, let's remove it entirely. So the Ontario Health Card, for example, doesn't have a sex marker on it, although they do record these things when um, infants are registered. And British Columbia is one of those jurisdictions that has just introduced an X, and uh, it is optional. Another argument that people had was that this, that folks who were arguing to remove uh, sex markers, and they're organizing as the Gender Free ID Coalition. Your um, listeners can Google them. They've got a web page. Uh, they say the X is dangerous and it exposes people as, as somehow strange. Um, opponents of that perspective, particularly sex workers in Montreal, say that they need to have an F so they can prove that they uh, should be able to access women-only social mm -hmm. services, which I think is a problem with how we're policing social service access and not so much with the gender marker. I personally would have preferred not to have a letter, uh, but given that there is an X, I want this program to function properly and to be well integrated with government so that even after folks have gone through the hoops of changing their gender marker and paid the fee and replaced all their ID. Uh, they're not accidentally misgendered when they go to the doctor or the hospital yeah. or to school or to register in university. And it seems also with uh, other parts of the, the provincial government, uh, for example, um, access to health care for transgender people, it seems to be very uh, uneven in terms of uh, where you might live geographically or what province you might be. And I'm wondering if you can sort of outline some of the, the big issues depending on where people are living or what's coming up as a public policy piece that is able to be movable right now or where the really big uh, things are stuck right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think the trans healthcare access barriers are coupled with trans access to justice issues um, because it's an encounter with government in in an, a number of ways and there's lots of access to all of these things in Vancouver you can walk into Catherine Whiteholm and Wellness you can call TransCare BC and find a doctor in your area who's accepting trans patients who will make some of these referrals to an endocrinologist or get you on the surgical wait list if you're in Vancouver um, in, there hadn't been services outside of Vancouver for a long time and it used to be that all trans health care was administered by Vancouver Coastal Health and if you didn't live in the catchment area, you needed a special referral. You mean for all of BC for or all of the BC. region? For all of BC. And for people who need uh, genital reconstruction, there's only one center in Canada that does those. So everybody in the country is referred to this private surgical center in Montreal. Our government has just made an announcement just before Christmas that they, we will be establishing a BC surgical program. So uh, top upper body and bottom lower body surgeries will happen in British Columbia. Um, and they're not all happening in Vancouver. There's going to be some <laughs> yeah. of these services. There's already a raft of surgeons on the island who are doing great service for folks on the island. Many people from Vancouver are being referred to the island because that's where the waiting lists are moving. Um, but also 
the option for surgery in places like Prince George and Kamloops, it's it's tremendous because people should be able to access healthcare in their communities where they've got uh, social support and their family doctor and all the medical professionals in the province need to understand trans health and need to understand trans people, not just so that we can be treated with respect, but if something goes wrong, people understand what's happened. And will those surgeries be covered financially for people Yes, too? they're going Excellent. to be covered by the medical services plan. Um, there's still a problem that if you can pay out of pocket, you can skip the queue and have yeah. surgery tomorrow. I needed MSP to pay for my chest reconstruction. And uh, with uh, the administrative issues that um, plagued government, the past eras of um, right-wing governments have not supported trans health. In fact, they closed the one center that was required to refer people out for surgical care when I started to investigate this process. I've waited about 10 or 12 years to get my chest reconstructed. Wow. And I was fortunate to have it paid by MSP, and I was extra fortunate to be able to do it in the community where I live. But I live in downtown Vancouver, and that should be a story that everybody who needs this kind of procedure can access if they want it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, in in terms of um, uh, access to the legal system, there seems to be some movement and uh, public agencies and bodies. But there's, I guess, also a problem of the broader culture where you know things get adjudicated in the law or uh, around government, but in terms of day to day life and the culture, that there is a huge amount of discrimination that trans people face. And uh, I'm wondering where you see advances and where things are also uh, challenge challenging there as well for people on a day-to-day basis? It's a good question because trans people, like any members of marginalized communities, consume much more law than more privileged people, and they consume it at, or are faced with it at administrative tribunals predominantly. We see them at welfare appeal boards and workers' compensation and um, the human rights tribunal. Uh, And these, um, generally, tribunals are run by well-meaning people who have set up a system that operates to a certain standard, but some of these basic barriers that folks certainly in this community in the downtown east side would face with basic literacy and access to computers and the ability to frame your problem in a small box of text that you need to enter, I'm gesturing wildly, um, (laughs) are, are problems for us. And for human rights complainants, there's nobody to help people draft their initial complaints. Once you've passed a certain stage in the human rights complaint process, and if there's room, there's a human rights clinic that has provincial funding that can assist people Um, And what people don't need more of really is what I'm able to provide. I give summary legal advice and I tell people, this is the nature of your problem. These are your options. There's nowhere I can refer you that can help. (laughs) This is what it would cost to file something in the BC Supreme Court. You can file something in Human Rights Tribunal. I will try and find some time to look over your complaint and make sure that it asks for the things that you're looking for. But we really need frontline Uh, lawyers and paralegals to prepare people and to support them because this process is so long and the burden really falls on the person who needs an advocate more than anything. I think also trans people, because of the way that our community is uh, excluded from lots of employment situations, uh, lots of trans people are involved in um, gray market economies to try and survive and that work is often criminalized. So lots of criminal charges, uh, lots of low level and often higher level rising to the level of assault, uh, harassment from private security and from police and from from private citizens are are commonplace. And 
it is not unusual for me to sit down with a group of trans people and explain this Know Your Rights workshop and and they don't really believe me that it applies to them because that's not what their lives have shown. And I think the message to take away from that is that we can change the law and make it say all kinds of things. So trans people are now explicitly protect, protected in human rights legislation across the country. We need to make that real for people and there needs to be a system of protecting those rights that isn't the one that we have now. Right. That is a, a bit of a positive note to end on. <laughs> I actually, I was up in class earlier today and I went into a washroom at SFU and on the inside where it said, like, don't dispose of your feminine, in air quotes, feminine hygiene products. Someone had crossed it out and nice. menstrual. I was like, yes, not just women Yes, have periods. And yes. it, was, it, it, it set the mood right for me today to come chat with you. <laughs> I was in a labor council meeting yeah. yesterday and the representative from the United Way of the Lower Mainland stood up and spoke to these um, largely masculine presenting delegates about the period promise campaign that they have to make menstrual products available in every place and to have employers start treating it like toilet paper is something that we need to provide. And for people who don't menstruate, this is a huge deal because mm-hmm. um, people can't, like you can't go without this product or you bleed through your clothes or you just can't leave the house. It's yeah, it can't, can't be done. <laughs> massive, massive yeah. access to basic social services and dignity. And um, it's so understated and so difficult for particularly street-involved people to, and very poor people, the working poor. This stuff is not cheap, and it's not available. And uh, just to have this United Way representative talk to these really brothers about why this was important. And for that room to be nodding its head in agreement... That's right. It's a testament yeah. to how far we have come as a, as a, a society and as a group of people. It gives me lots of hope. Very cool. Adrian, thanks so much for uh, joining us and the great work that you do. And uh, we look forward to following uh, all of these um, uh, issues and, and advances as they as they happen. Thank you. Thanks very much, though. Thank you. Fantastic That's our here. episode of Below the Radar. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the producers and thanks to Davis Steele for composing the music for this podcast. Be sure to give us a like on Facebook and tune in next time.